We are returning to our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We're picking up right where we left off. And that means the next topic that we're addressing is divorce. And I'm guessing if we have visitors here, you're probably thinking, why in the world are you guys talking about divorce? How did you come up with this topic? And the answer is, this is the beauty of what we do here. We go through God's Word pretty much verse by verse, and whatever the next topic is, that's what we deal with. And we believe that's important because we are hearing from God's Word. We don't sort of pick and choose which parts do we like or not like or which parts are more comfortable or less comfortable. If it's there, we address it. And I just want to point out, I think that's good. I think that's healthy. We, we need to hear this. If we don't hear it now, when are we going to hear what God's Word has to say about this? And when are our kids going to hear about what God's Word has to say about this? And, and I just want to point out, my goal here this morning is the same as always. I just want to be faithful to the text. It's God's Word. I don't want to say more. I don't want to say less. My goal is not to offend. My goal is one day I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account. Was I faithful to His Word? And I'll be honest with you, that's what drives me every Sunday to decide what I say and don't say. And so we're going to try to be faithful to the text. Let's begin by reading it. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark 10. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin by reading from verse 1, and I hope you follow along. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help me now to communicate faithfully your word. My goal is to say not more and not less. So I pray you'll use this time to minister to your people. I want to pray specifically for those who were married I want to pray specifically for those who are divorced, and I want to pray specifically for those who are single, that you'll use this time, your word, by your spirit, to do your work in our hearts and lives for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you notice in verse 1, it says, He left there. That's a reference to Galilee. That's where he's been virtually the entire time in the Gospel of Mark. But his ministry there is finished. He's now heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. He knows that's where he's going. Notice it says, people gathered to him. Crowds. This is common. We've seen this pattern. He goes to an area. People flock to him. And what does he do? It says he teaches them. He was a teacher. That's one of the central marks of Christian ministry. Teaching, preaching. Where you have Christian teaching, Christian preaching, you have Christian ministry. And uh, the, verse 2 tells us, the Pharisees came up in order to test him. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. They're out to get him. We've seen it from the beginning. 
and they come up and they have a question for him and their motivation behind their question is to test him, which means they have a sinister motive. The, the word test here is the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 13, where it says Satan tested or tempted Jesus. The goal was to, to, to get him to fall. And their goal here is to get him to fall. And they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it within God's law? Is it within God's will for a man to divorce his wife? Now, why is that a sinister question? What is it that's behind the question that makes it sinister? Several answers. Number one, there were a couple different views of divorce among the Jewish rabbis in this day. Uh, one of the views was a little more conservative. One was a little more liberal. And uh, the more conservative view said, you can't divorce unless there's adultery or unfaithfulness. Uh, the, the other view said, and this is in writing, like you can pretty much divorce for just about any reason. Like it, it literally says in writing, if she burns the food, you can divorce her. This is one of the rabbi's teachings, you know, one of the, one of the, the views. Uh, if, if, if you find another woman more attractive than her, then that's grounds for divorce. So this is what Jesus is dealing with. You got these two groups, two views that have two very different views and perhaps they want to get him to sort of side with one group against the other. Their goal is to get him in trouble with the people. And this brings us to the second thing that's behind this. Uh, a lot of people in the crowd would have been divorced. In the Greco-Roman world, there's a lot of divorced people, just like there's a lot of divorced people today. You get any large group of people together, you're going to have a lot of divorced people. And they want to get Jesus talking about divorce because they've heard him. They know what his position is. This is not an honest question. They know what his views are on marriage and divorce, and they want to get him talking to turn the crowds against him. They don't want the crowds for him. And a third thing that's sort of behind the scenes going on here, they're in the region of Herod. And if you remember back in Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist got in trouble with Herod and Herod's wife. Why? Because John the Baptist said they, they were guilty of adultery. Why? Because Herod and his wife divorced their spouses and married one another. And John the Baptist wasn't afraid to call him out. He says, that's wrong. You guys are adulterous. You're in an adulterous relationship. And what happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded for teaching this. So perhaps they're in the region of Herod. They want to get Jesus on record. They know he's going to teach something very similar to John the Baptist. They want to get him in trouble. They want to get him killed. They want to get him beheaded. Look at how he answers verse 3. Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? What does Moses say about this? How does Moses answer this question? Now, let me make several observations here. First observation I want to make. They're going to go on and they're going to quote from Genesis and Deuteronomy. So I just want to make the observation that Jesus is saying that Moses wrote Genesis and Deuteronomy. There's a big debate today. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? According to Jesus, it was Moses. So if Jesus says it's Moses, guess what? I'm going to say it's Moses too, right? So who is the author of the first five books of the Bible? I believe it's Moses. One of the reasons I believe that is because Jesus says so right here. That's a side, side issue, but an important issue. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus answers the question by appealing to Moses, by appealing to the Old Testament. Some people think Jesus came to teach something radically different from the Old Testament. That's just not the case. Are some of his teachings new? Yes, but even then they're very consistent with the essence of the Old Testament. And in many cases, Jesus just teaches verbatim what the Old Testament teaches. And such is the case with marriage. Jesus is just going to teach verbatim what the Bible already says about marriage. 
And when, when Jesus is asked, what does Moses command? When Jesus asked the question, what does Moses command about marriage? What he has in mind is Genesis. How do I know that? Because he's going to go on, he's going to quote verse, in verses 6 through 8, the account in Genesis. A man shall leave his, his father and mother. He shall hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one. So when Jesus says, what does Moses command about these things? Jesus knows the answer is look at Genesis. But that's not what the religious leaders do. Look what they do. Look how they respond. Verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What are they talking about? They're appealing to a passage in Deuteronomy 24. And that passage is pretty unique. Sometime go check it out. Deuteronomy 24 says this, if there is a divorce, and if there is a remarriage after the divorce, then those two people are not to come back and, and marry their original spouse. That's the command. The command in Deuteronomy 24 is don't remarry your original spouse if you go on and get remarried to someone else. That's the command. And, and, and the Pharisees are using that command and they're saying, look, God permits divorce. God allows divorce. And that's not at all what Deuteronomy 24 says. And Jesus calls them out on it. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, it is because of your hardness of heart that he wrote this commandment in the first place. Deuteronomy 24 does not allow you to get divorced. It does not promote divorce in any way. Deuteronomy 24 recognizes sometimes there's divorce. Whether legitimate or not, sometimes there's divorce. And when there is, and if there is, here's a law that's to govern the way you think after the divorce. See, the religious leaders think they found this exception. Uh, they're appealing to the exception, the potential exception. And they're completely missing the essence of, of God's word. They're completely missing the essence of the law. And I just point out, my kids often do this. They look for the exception clause, what, can, what is permissible, and they miss what is the heart and the essence and the reason for the law that we give them. Let me give an example. We will often say, hey guys, tonight we're not going to watch TV. We're going to spend time as a family. We're going to have quality family time together. And you know what inevitably is the question that comes back? Can we look at our phones? You know? Can we get out on our devices and get on our devices? It's like, what, are you, are you, you're just looking for the exception clause. Like, what can I get away with? What's permitted? And you completely missed the whole essence of the law. The law was, we're going to turn off the TV in order to spend time together, quality time together as a family. You just missed the whole point. By asking, what are the exceptions? What are the loopholes? You've missed the essence. And I, I think we often do this. We take God's word and we immediately start saying, what can I get away with with this? You know, what, what are the exceptions here? And we miss, like, why did he give us the rule in the first place? Why did he give us the law in the first place? How does this law reflect his character? And how does this law good in a way that I should be embracing the essence of it? And I think when it comes to issues of marriage and sexuality, we're especially inclined to want to find how far can we go and, and not be breaking the law instead of asking the question, how can I embrace this to the fullest and experience the goodness of God's law when it comes to marriage and sexuality? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's, he's taking us back to the beginning, first principles. Like, let's get back to the basics. What is marriage? Let's not start with what can we get away with. 
What are the exceptions? What's allowable? Let's ask the question, what is marriage according to God's word? Look at verse 6. Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation. See, he's going back. First things, first principles. That's the, that's the right place to go. Go to the beginning. What is marriage? From the beginning, from creation, God made them male and female. What's he doing there? He's quoting Genesis 1.27. And then he goes on and he quotes Genesis 2.24. Just straight quote verbatim. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And now Jesus proceeds to sort of give us his summary. Here's my summary, summarizing what I've, what, what I've just quoted. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God created man in his image. How do we image God? We image God as male and female. We, we bear the image of God as male and female. And he says, therefore, the man will leave his father and mother, the wife will leave her father and mother, and the two will come together, and two will become one, like one new entity, one physically, one emotionally, one spiritually. This is what marriage is. I want you to notice there's an assumption that there will be children. You can't have this equation without children. Who, who does the man leave? He leaves his father and mother. He's the child of the father and the mother. Who does he marry? He marries the daughter of a of a, of a, of a husband and wife, right? And they come together, and the assumption is they will be fruitful and multiply. That's how this works. That's how you continue to have marriages. It's how you continue to have society. The assumption is they will become one, and then they will have children. They'll be fruitful and multiply. And I don't think it's any coincidence. Guess what? Guess what comes right on the heels of this teaching about marriage and divorce? A passage about children. We'll look at it next week, verses 13 through 16. The little children are coming to Jesus and the disciples say, don't waste his time, get away. And what does Jesus say? Let the little children come to me. God values children. He values marriage. It's his idea. Marriage is the most basic building block of society. It's crucial. It's essential. You, you, you start messing with it and redefining it, pretty soon you're not going to have society. You need marriage. You need children. You need family. And then you have a functioning society. God's the one who came up with it. The sitting man coming around, coming up with conventions, old ways of thinking about this. This is just the most basic, bare-bone, fundamental, first thing. Like, this is the most basic building block of everything. Right? Man, one man, one woman, coming together, become one, have children. I want you to notice what it's not. I just want to be really clear what this is not. First of all, it's not polyamorous. It's not several men. It's not several women. It's one man, and it's one woman. And that's very important. I want you to notice it's not serial monogamy. I think a lot of people today think they're being monogamous and they're following the pattern because it's one man and one woman for a while until one of them kind of gets tired of the other one. And then we change it up, change the partner, and it's a new man and a woman. That, that, that's not the picture here. One man, one woman, together until death do us part. That's the definition. I want you to notice it's not homosexual. It's not two men. It's not two women. That's not God's design. It's one man. It's one woman. Biology tells us that. The Bible tells us that. Jesus tells us that. Some people will say, well, Jesus never 
talked about homosexuality. He addresses the issue right here, clear as day. Verse 6, God made them male and female. Therefore, the husband will leave his father and mother and he will hold fast to his wife. It's clear. Jesus is, is giving it to us clear, clearly. Genesis is clear. The rest of the Old Testament is clear. Jesus is clear. The apostles are clear. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. Now, our culture hears this and says, that's so restrictive. It's so restraining. It's so restrictive. And the answer is, well, it is restrictive. It is restricting certain things, but, but it's restrictive in the same kind of way that me holding my young daughter's hand in a parking lot is restrictive. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm restricting her out of love. Like, don't go run off and get hit by a truck, right? I love you. you wouldn't, if you saw me holding my daughter's hand through a parking lot, you wouldn't say, man, you're such a restrictive father. He said, you look like you're doing a good job as a father, like making sure your daughter stays there and she's healthy and she lives and she survives, right? Th these strictions are given to us for our good. It's not just telling us what to avoid. We so often folk, the restriction is telling us what to avoid. Well, yes, it is, but it's also there to tell us what's so good and right and true and beautiful and pure about God's design and marriage. And, uh, and, you know, here's the question. Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to be happy in life? Trust God. Go with his design. You know, leave your father and mother. Cling to, hold fast to the wife, the wife of your youth. Be faithful to her until death do us part. And experience the joy of that. Right? Do you want to be unhappy? Do you want to be unsatisfied? Go against your maker. Go against your creator. Live your truth. Right? Follow your feelings and see how that works, and see if in the end that leads to a path that leads to the happiness and the joy and the satisfaction that deep down we're all craving, we're all wanting. It won't lead to happiness. It won't lead to satisfaction. It's not ultimately good, and it definitely won't lead to a flourishing society. The world will look at us as we talk about these things and say, do you guys really believe this stuff? Like, this is such a dated view of marriage. You know, it's so oppressive. It sounds so patriarchal. It sounds so restrictive. You know, you guys don't really think people are free to love whomever they want to love. Why don't you guys be more like Jesus? He just loved everybody, and he didn't judge people. You're being so judgmental. I just want to point out, Jesus is the one who's giving the restrictions here. It's not the Pharisees. The Pharisees are potentially more liberal on the issue. Jesus is the one who's restricting marriage and defining marriage very strictly. See, sometimes even Christians will push back. If you start talking about having a Christian sexual ethic, even Christians say, man, you sound so pharisaical about this. All these rules. Jesus didn't give us rules. <laughs> Jesus wasn't restrictive. Yes, he is. Very restrictive, very clear, more restrictive than the Pharisees. I'm not being like a Pharisee. I'm being like Jesus when I follow the biblical sexual ethic. And I want you to notice Jesus is not emphasizing what's wrong about divorce or homosexuality or sexuality outside of marriage. If that's not the emphasis, it's clearly there. And we should clearly talk about it. What's wrong with these things? We're restricted from them because they're sinful. Absolutely. But we're also restricted from them because they're not leading to what's good and right and true and pure about marriage. 
And that ought to be what we emphasize. That's what Jesus emphasizes, what the Bible emphasizes, what's good, right, true, pure, beautiful about marriage. Is there a time and place to talk about what's wrong about these things? Absolutely. Should that be our central focus? No. What should be our central focus? Wow, look how wonderful marriage is. And by the way, our marriages ought to be reflecting that. Like our children ought to be watching our marriages and saying, that's a wonderful picture. I want that. Our neighbors ought to be witnessing our marriages and saying, I like that. I want that. Tell me more about that. Why do you guys act that way and treat each other that way? We're interested. Do you ever go to a, like a cookout in your neighborhood or your Sunday school class and everybody brings a side, or everybody brings a dessert, and there's always that one that everybody really likes and they're asking, hey, what's the recipe? Send us the recipe for that. And then there's always one that somebody just sort of phoned in. You know, you can tell they kind of forgot and just whipped it together and nobody's asking for the recipe for that, right? Here's my question for you. In your marriage, when people are around you and they're around your marriage, is anybody asking for the recipe for your marriage? Like, we're interested in hearing, how, how, why are you guys treating each other this way? We like it. We're interested. We're attracted. Is anybody asking you for the recipe? If not, why not? If nobody's asking for your recipe, and if your marriage is unhealthy, just sort of a side note, we don't really need you to be the spokesperson for marriage to the world, right? We don't need you to be the one running around telling everybody what's wrong about these things if everybody's going, we're not really wanting your recipe, right? The world ought to be looking at marriages in the church and saying, we don't know if we agree with all that you guys believe in, but man, your marriages are attractive to us. We want to hear more. Notice in verse 10, Jesus is with the disciples. They're no longer in the crowd. They're back home. The disciples say, we got some more questions about what you were talking about today, about divorce and marriage. And Jesus responds and summarizes his teaching in verses 11 and 12. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he says, let me summarize it for you. I'm, I'm teaching the same thing that the Old Testament taught. God hates divorce. That's the essence of what he's saying here. God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16. The Old Testament is clear about it. And Jesus is just re-emphasizing it. When you have divorce, you have sin. When you have divorce, you have a going against God's good design and God's good pattern. When you have divorce, you typically have adultery. That's the seventh commandment. So you have a breaking of the seventh commandment. It's not good. Now, we have to ask the question, are there exceptions? Does the Bible provide exceptions? Are there ever times when a Christian is justified in getting divorced and potentially getting remarried? And the Bible gives us two exceptions. Let me mention them. First of all, there's a biblical exception for sexual immorality. We see this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, which is Matthew's account of the same passage that we're looking at today in Mark. Listen to how Jesus says it in Matthew 19.9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So notice the main point. The main point Jesus is making is don't get divorced. But he is providing an exception. What is the exception? Sexual immorality. If there's sexual unfaithfulness, then there is permission, there is allowability to get divorced, and I believe also to remarry. I believe the exception clause 
the sexual infidelity exception clause covers not only the divorce, but it also covers the potential remarriage. So if you're married to a spouse and your spouse is unfaithful to you uh, sexually with another person, adultery, you are free, I believe according to Scripture, to divorce that person and to remarry. Here's the second biblical exception. Desertion. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7.15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In the context, Paul is addressing believers who are married to unbelievers. And he says, believers, if you're married to an unbeliever and he or she is willing to stay with you in the marriage, by all means, stay in the marriage. Even if they're not a Christian, stay in the marriage. Save the marriage. But if he or she leaves you, deserts you, then, then, then you are free to consider yourself not with them. And I believe, once again, you're free to remarry. They have deserted you. Uh, a lot of people will include in this exception clause physical abuse. So a lot of people will say physical abuse would fall under the heading of desertion. And I, I would say, if you're in a relationship and you are being physically abused, you should remove yourself and your children. If your children are at physical risk or you are at physical risk, you should separate and remove yourself from that danger and you should involve the legal authorities. That's a legal authority uh, state kind of issue that you should involve them in it. And then from there you can figure out what to do. And, and by the way, we would be willing to walk with you through that and would love to walk with you through that if you need help walking through that kind of issue. But there are two times, biblically, where divorce is, it's not commanded, but it is allowed. And it makes sense. The two make sense. Unfaithfulness and desertion. Why? Because of how Jesus defines marriage. What is marriage? One man, one woman, together becoming one. If one of the two partners brings another person into the equation, you now have three people and you don't have biblical marriage. To bring another person in is, is to tinker with God's definition. That's the problem. That's why divorce is permissible in that situation. Not commanded, permissible. If you have two people and one of the two people deserts the other one, you no longer have two people. You no longer have marriage. You can't have marriage. Marriage is two people. The two become one. So that is why there's a biblical qualification for permitting divorce. And once again, I believe remarriage as well. Now, in light of everything we've said, I want to sort of put it all together and I want to address several different groups of people in our church and make some really pastoral, practical applications. All right? So first of all, I want to address those of you who are happily married or I'll say somewhat happily married. All right? Uh, first of all, if you are, I just want to say praise God. I'm very grateful. We have a lot of wonderful, healthy marriages in our church, and we should thank God for that. And you should recognize uh, God gave you her. God gave you him. God put you together and made you one. And what he calls one, let no man separate. And so uh, glory in that, delight in that. And I would also say that's the most important personal relationship you have with another human. Uh, so therefore, work at it, cultivate it, get better at it. Even if you say here this morning, I believe our marriage is on a, a, a nine on a scale of one to ten. We are a nine. We're doing great. Wonderful. Keep
keep working and be a 10 out of 10. Like, it's worth it. Right? And one, one of the books I often recommend and I personally go through uh, is, is a book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. So if you just need a, re- get a resource, find a resource, here's a good one, Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. Work through the book together, talk through the book together, and do whatever it takes to maintain, cultivate, work at the marriage. It's worth it. Now, let me address those who are married, but you're unhappily married. Let's say you have two people, and they're unhappy, but they're both committed. And let's say they're both willing to work at it. Like, I'm committed, and I'm willing to work at it. You've got a recipe for great hope. You can work it out. You can get through this spell, and you can restore and redeem the marriage. So do it. It's worth it. Let's say you have two people, and neither one of them are really willing to do anything, neither willing to budge, neither willing to work for it. That's a recipe for disaster. If neither are willing, watch out, right? And get help now. It's probably too, it's possibly too late, but get help, right? And if you're willing to get help, that proves it's not too late, by the way. If you have one spouse who's willing and one spouse who's unwilling, I, I, I talk to couples like this f- fairly frequently, and I always say to the spouse who's willing, like, there's hope here, but it's largely on your shoulders. Like, you're the one that's willing. He's not willing. She's not willing. You've got to be strategic. What is it going to take to win him back? What is it going to take to win her back? Be strategic. Be like wartime mentality. By the way, nagging is not going to work constantly telling him or telling her what she's not doing or he's not doing, you're not going to win him back that way. I guarantee you. So you've got to be strategic. What do I do? What do I say? How do I say it in order to try to win her back, win him back in order to rescue the marriage? It's hard work. But from God's word, I would urge you to try, work at it. Divorce is not an option. According to God's word, it's not an option. Are there some biblical exceptions? Yes, there are, but don't exploit them. Some people, they want out of the marriage and they'll do anything and they'll kind of find the loophole. That's not what the exceptions are for. And I know it's hard. I'm not standing here suggesting this is easy. I know it's hard. That's why you need community. You need the church. You need godly counsel walking with you through this. So be willing to get it in order to work through this. Let me address those who are widows or widowers. We have a large number of widows and widowers in our church. And I just want to say, I, I, I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Um, I'm grateful. I see a lot of our widows and widowers getting together for social events, fellowship. I see them getting together and serving together, uh, serving in different ministries of the church. That's wonderful. I say, way to go. Keep doing that. Let the church be your family, your community. And uh, here's what God's Word says to you about the potential of remarriage. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 39 through 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. So, boy, you can't accuse the Bible of not being practical, right? Paul says, hey, if you're a widow, you're free to remarry. But if I were you and you can stay single, I'd consider staying single, right? So I'll just let you take that how you want to take it. Now let's transition and talk about those who are divorced and single. I am guessing if you are divorced and single here this morning, you have experienced brokenness and pain, and you probably still are experiencing it right now at some level. And we want Vista Grande Baptist Church to be a church that grieves with those who grieve and mourns with those who mourn. 
So we want to be a church family, a church community that loves you in that, uh, embraces you where you are loved and welcome and you experience community and family here. The Bible recognizes sometimes divorce happens even when there's not a biblical exception. Like, it happens. We live in a broken, fallen world. People have hard hearts. There's sin in the world. It happens. And, and, and it is not an unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. It is a sin that is forgivable and God will forgive it. And so my encouragement to you is go to God and receive forgiveness and be forgiven and be cleansed and be washed white as snow. And the common question is, can I get remarried? According to the Bible, can I get remarried? And I would say it depends on your unique situation. I can't stand here and give you all the scenarios. What about this? What about that? But if you'd like to walk through that with us, we would be more than willing to walk with you through that, talk with you through that, try to be faithful to God's word and faithful to you and love you through that, figuring out what does biblical faithfulness look like for you. Now let's address those who are divorced and, and remarried. Let's say you're divorced and you're remarried and you know the circumstances around your divorce were not good. Perhaps they were unbiblical. Perhaps you're at fault. Um, perhaps you even feel convicted about it this morning. Perhaps you feel great conviction and, and guilt and despair about it this morning. What would God's word say to you? I believe God's word would say to you, you should stay in that marriage. In other words, you should not try to undo a past wrong by doing a present wrong. Right? If, you are, if you are in a committed covenant relationship with a person and you've committed to love him or her, I believe the Bible says to you, 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 you stay faithful to your covenant commitment. You, you stay in that until death do you part. That's what marriage is. And God is in the business of redemption. He can redeem it no matter what happened in the past. He can restore it. He can use it. He can bless it. And it can become a wonderful, good, godly marriage. Now, don't hear that and say, well, that just sounds like a license for me to go get divorced because God will forgive me. If you're thinking like that, you're completely missing the essence of God's word here. And I'd say, go back and reread the passage again right, and read it slowly. Now, let me address those who are single. The Bible says if you are single and you can remain that way, that's a good thing. In fact, in Matthew 19, when Jesus teaches this, which is basically the permanency of marriage. He's talking here about the permanency of marriage. Marriage is permanent until death do us part. You know how the disciples respond? They say, if this is true, then it sounds to us like it'd be better to be single. That's how serious Jesus is talking about the permanency of marriage. He's like, guys, this is for life. And they're like, well, maybe we ought to be single. And Jesus says, well, actually, yeah, if you can be, that's actually a pretty good thing. Be single if God's called you to that. But if you are single and you desire marriage, guess what? You desire a good thing. God, have, uh, marriage is good. It's given to us by God from the beginning. I just want to encourage you this morning, make sure you marry someone who is very compatible in the sense of you like them and they like you and, and, and there's an attraction there and you're friends and, and you have similar convictions about the Christian faith. That'd be priority number one, right? You have the same faith. Make sure he or she has the same views of marriage that you do. Uh, don't compromise. Be discerning. Because marriage is hard. That's why. You're marrying a sinner. And you're marrying someone you don't know exactly what he or she's going to be like in 20 years from now. Think about that. You are making a commitment 
to love a person for the rest of your life and you don't really know, life's going to change him. Life is going to change her. She's going to be a different person 20 years from now. And you're committing to marry a person at some level you don't really know for sure. Marriage is hard, right? You need to know that. Don't compromise. Don't marry him saying, I think I'm going to change him. You know, I know he's not a Christian, but I think I'm going to change that. I know we don't have the same values and commitments and he's kind of annoying, but I think he's going to mature. You're probably getting the best side of him right now. Like he's probably putting his best foot forward right now. So just assume this is probably about as good as it gets right here. Right? Being realistic here. Don't compromise. At the exact same time, I want to be clear, don't expect the stars to align and a voice from heaven to come and say, this is the one. Marry him. Like, that only happens like one time in the Bible, and that's with Jesus. When the shepherds, this is God's son. It doesn't happen. Like, the stars are not going to realign. That's, that's Disney. That's Hollywood. And ironically, they have a really, they have this hugely high view of marriage, and they have this hugely low view of marriage. And both will crush you. We need to have a biblical view of marriage, which is, it's good. It's wonderful. And it's hard. It's challenging. Right? And, and so, are you single? You want to get married? Find a person you're compatible with. You like them. They like you. I think an attraction there is a good thing. You want to make sure they have the same uh, commitment to the Christian faith and marriage. And then get married. Knowing it's good and knowing it's challenging. And knowing that God gives us the resources we need in the challenge. In particular, he gives us the gospel. In Ephesians 5 Paul talks about this. He talks about how marriage, God gave us marriage, and marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of, of the relationship between Christ and his church. So the image that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God is the image of marriage. We're, we're like his spouse. And guess what? The Bible talks a lot about the fact that we are his unfaithful spouse. The Bible talks a lot about the fact that we are his adulterous spouse. We are all adulterers against God. And what does he do in our adultery, in our unfaithfulness? He loves us. He loves us so much he gives everything. He sacrifices everything. That which is most valuable to him, he sacrifices. Why? In order to woo us back and to bring us back and restore us to him. That's the gospel that will motivate you to recognize your sin your, your, and will cause you to need to confess and repent of your unfaithfulness. First of all, in your marriage to God. The gospel should drive you to repent of your adultery and in your unfaithfulness to God. And he'll forgive you. And the gospel should motivate you to confess and repent of your unfaithfulness as a husband, as a wife. None of us in here have been perfect husbands. None of us in here have been perfect wives. We all have shortcomings. We've all sinned, right? The gospel will allow that to not crush you. Don't let that sobering truth crush you. Let the gospel be what reminds you, yeah, you really have messed up. But there's grace. God loves you. Go to him and find forgiveness. Go to your spouse and find forgiveness. And the gospel will motivate you not only to confess and repent of your sin, it'll motivate you to be faithful where you are. The gospel motivates me to be faithful. So are you single? Are you struggling in your singleness? Are you tempted to go outside the rules and, and do things your way and not follow God's boundaries for love and marriage and sexuality? Are you tempted in that? 
Come back to the gospel and be reminded of what God did for you and let him be the husband who loves you and satisfies you until he provides a spouse, right? Let the gospel be what motivates you to be faithful in your marriage. So she's not all you, she's not all you need her to be. He's not being what you need and want him to be. Look to God who loved you when you weren't all you could be. Look to God who loves you when you're unlovable. When you're unlovable, when you're an adulterer, when you're unfaithful, God loves you with an unfailing, unrelenting love. You are loved. Let that melt you until you say, I can love him even though he's not loving me the way I want. I can love her even though she's not returning and she's not loving me the way I want. Let the gospel be the fuel, the fire that motivates you when marriage is tough, and sometimes it is. So make sure this morning you have experienced this love. It's an incredible love. We all want to be loved. You can be by the most important person, God, your creator. He wants to love you. He will love you. He has shown his love in Christ. If you'll go to Christ and trust in him and believe in him, you can be loved in an unbelievable way and know that you're loved. And that'll be what you need to be faithful, whether you're single, divorced, married. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for loving us even in our unfaithfulness, even in our adultery against you. We confess we don't deserve it. I pray every person in this room, every person watching online would recognize their own sin, their own need, and flee to Christ and enter into this incredible love relationship that all of us deep down are craving and only you can satisfy. I pray every person would go to Christ and believe and be saved and be loved and be a part of that wedding celebration one day in the future when Christ returns. And Father, I pray this love will compel us and motivate us and warm our hearts to be faithful right where we are. For those who are single, to be faithful in their singleness. Faithful to you. For those who are divorced, to be faithful, even in their pain, to be faithful. And those who are married, even in the challenges, to be faithful in their marriage, to love their husbands, to love their wives the way you've loved us, because you've loved us in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.